Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, good morning. You know your love, don't you? You know that? Okay, good. I'm glad you know that because you need to know that. Uh, my greetings from Annette. I'm sending her greetings to you. And uh, she's up in Seattle with our ID students. That's our internship program here. And they have this great opportunity, and they have for several, several years, to work uh, for Microsoft. They go up for events, and, and Microsoft only brings in the best. And that tells you something about your interns, that they keep getting asked to come up and do these event forces where they offset some of the costs for internship by going there and serving for a week and, and really blending in there just a little bit. It's top secret. We heard that. You can't, you got to be careful when you're there. They sign releases. You can't talk about things. It's, it's a, it's a high end, it's a high end thing. And so uh, keep praying for our interns. Pray for discipleship that goes on here. That just means being a Christ follower because that's our passion. Uh, that really is the heart and the value of what we do. It's about making disciples in everything that goes on around here in our community. We know God is doing a good work in your heart. I know he's doing a good work in my heart. We want to continue that. Well, we're in a series titled Breaking Free, and we're walking verse by verse through one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. That's Romans chapter 8. Listen, if you're struggling with some pretty heavy stuff in life, we all do, then the best place possible for you to turn is Romans chapter 8. In week one of our series, we discovered that if we're feeling condemned, if we're feeling guilty, that if our past has come back to haunt us, Satan is trying to hold us down with past sins, we turn to Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, if you remember, says this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope you hear that because that should set us free. There is no condemnation to you. Jesus took that condemnation upon himself. He set us free from those condemning voices of our past. Remember, one of the themes here is where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I can't tell you the passion that I have to to see people set free, to experience freedom in my own life, freedom in your life. But God has made a way for us. He's made a way for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're feeling worn out because you've been trying to live a good life, trying to be that person you know that God wants you to be, but your flesh keeps getting in the way, Romans chapter 8 is where you want to go. Because in verse 11, it says this, we have the same spirit in us that raised Jesus from the dead, that his spirit is alive in us. That God has given us power over our flesh. He's given us power over our desires. Uh, last week, I sent a little note to one of my friends just encouraging him. And, and uh, he sent me a note back, and I want to read it to you. He said, thank you, Ron. Your timing couldn't have been better. After your message this last Sunday, I feel like the last two days my flesh is being attacked. Thank you. And I wrote this, me too. I think that what's happening when we talk about this subject of the spirit and the flesh is we become more aware of the spirit of God working in our lives. He wrote back and he says, I needed to hear that because sometimes we can think, I think, that I'm the only one going through something like this. 
Is he the only one going through something like this? No, he's not. How many struggle with your flesh? The rest of you should be in heaven. That's all I got to say to you. I mean, just letting you know. We do. I mean, we have that struggle going on. And that's why the Bible says that we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to discover that Romans chapter 8 deals with hopelessness. That if you're feeling hopelessness and you need some hope today, Romans chapter 8 is where it's at. I want you to do this with me. Turn in your Bible with me to Romans chapter 8. I want you to put your finger on verses 18 through 21. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. And the question that we're asking today is, where is your hope? Where is your hope is probably one of the most fundamentally important questions that you will answer in your life. Having the right hope can give you freedom. It can give you peace despite your circumstances, despite the trials that you face in life. Now, on the other side of that, having the wrong hope can fill you with anxiety. It can fill you with despair. It can leave you captive to discouragement and despair. Where you put your hope determines so much about who you are right now. Where you put your hope determines so much about how you live life right now. And where you put your hope is important. It's something, it's so fundamental. We don't really talk a lot about hope. We just kind of think that it's there and we take it for granted. I know I have. Uh, But hope is, is so important to our lives. Hope is so important to the way we live. And what I want to do is today I want to just lay a a, a foundation for you and help you understand the value of hope in your life. Help you understand what hope really brings to your life. So here are a few different things that are determined by the hope that we have. First of all, hope lays the foundation of your personality. Hope lays the foundation of who you are. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. What we put our hope in allows us to have joy and peace no matter our circumstances. Or if we put our hope in the wrong things, it can lead to a lot of stress, a lot of depression, a lot of despair. Think about what happened after the collapse of 2008. I mean, mutual funds and, and, and 401ks and people who invested their whole life and their whole life savings. All of their hope was, was placed in, in this nest egg and it went away. And the despair, the discouragement that came because what they put their hope in seemed to be lost. You see, in so many ways, what we put our hope in lays the foundation for our our temperament. I think there's another thing. Uh, Another thing is having the right hope, and what it does is it dictates the purpose of your life. Ultimately, whatever you put your hope in is what you live for. It's just that simple. Another way to say it is what you live for is what you put your hope in. If you're trying to determine where does your hope and where is your hope and what does it look like, where does my hope rest, well, I can tell you where your hope rests by what you live for. Our hope determines the purpose of our lives, and that's why for some people they put their hope in money or they put their hope in religion, their hope in relationships or their hope in family, their hope in health. Now, here's the challenge. The challenge is that many of us put our hope in something that will ultimately go away. We put our hope in something that will ultimately be stripped away because it's not eternal. 
It's something that we invest in and, and then we find out later in life or maybe earlier in life that, that, that it's gone. It's not there anymore. And that's why Paul talks to us about having a living hope that doesn't die and it doesn't fade away. So whatever you put your hope in will determine what you live for. There's another thing about hope. Having the right hope does this. It determines your ability to endure. Think about that for a moment. It it determines your, your, your ability to last through life's trials, through everything that comes your way. So whatever we put our hope in will determine what we live for. But it will also determine our ability to endure. So many of you, you you understand this, you get it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you face life challenges. It's a matter of when life throws those curveballs at you. And it sometimes feels devastating. And so when that happens, do those challenges lead to despair? Well, it really does depend on what you put your hope in. Because if you put your hope in something that's temporary, it does lead to despair. But if you put your hope in something outside of this life, then it gives you the ability to endure. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says that there is a hope that does not disappoint. That that there is one hope that doesn't disappoint. It doesn't fade away. And that hope is Jesus. That's what he's saying, that if you want to live and endure through the trials of life, if you want to come out victoriously, if you, if you want to be in so many ways on top of the world, then what you do is you don't put your hope on temporal things, you put your hope in one thing, and that's in Jesus Christ. Everything else that we put our hope in will be at some point, it will be stripped away. We have a living hope in Jesus. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks to us about putting our hope in the right things. And I want you to listen to what it says in verses 18 through 21. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom, the freedom and glory of the children of God. Notice that first phrase in verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings what you need to know about this is Paul is using this general description to, de- to, to describe something that is very personal to us. Pre- present sufferings is, is a, a very generic term, and Paul's using it that way on purpose. In fact, when you read other places when he talks about suffering, he doesn't label those sufferings. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily tell you what those sufferings are. And the reason he's doing that is because he knows his readers, his listeners, have their own personal sufferings, and what he's asking you to do is fill in the blank. He said, here's the personal sufferings. What are your personal sufferings? And maybe you should think about that now. Maybe you want to label those right now and say, this is, this is my personal suffering. This is what I'm going through. Paul didn't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. And it's important to understand this passage. It's important that you identify what your present suffering is right now in order to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. 
Maybe your present suffering is health-related or financial or relational. It's possible, it is possible, that you're sitting next to your present suffering. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or that person behind you. I don't know. But what Paul says here is he says, listen, take the time and identify what that present suffering is in your life. Understand what it is. Present sufferings are true of all of us. And it's important for us to recognize how Scripture deals with present sufferings. The theology of suffering isn't something that we really like to look at. It certainly isn't something that our culture in this country has taken much time to look at. But it's very real when you go through Scripture. It's very real when you look at the life of Christ and what that does mean to us. Our, um, our, our theological suffering, our idea of suffering is pretty shallow in this nation. But you go to other nations, you go to China or you go to Syria or you go to places where Christians are suffering every day, every hour, every moment. Their theology about suffering goes so deep and it really hinges on one thing and that is their hope is in Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand this. Because many times we we get this false impression that when we become a Christian, there will be no present suffering. Maybe you thought this. Maybe you thought, well, once I became a Christian and I'm on God's team, that would make everything right in the world for me. That that everything would be okay. That that when I accept Jesus, then I'm not going to really go through any suffering. On the contrary, it might even get more for you. It might even increase. The Bible never teaches that we will never go through suffering. The Bible never teaches that anywhere. In fact, in John chapter 16, Jesus is looking his disciples in the eyes. He's getting ready to go suffer even more for us, dying on a cross, rising again from the grave. And what he does is he looks them in the eyes, very personal conversation, and he says to them, in this world, you will have trouble." That's that's not the only place that Jesus talks about trouble. It's not the only place that the New Testament talks about trouble. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. What he's saying there is in Christ Jesus, we will face suffering, but we can overcome, that we can go through and be more than conquerors in him. So when present sufferings come, what they do is they reveal what we put our hope in. When you go through whatever suffering you go through, whatever label you've put on that, it reveals what we put our hope in. They show the foundation that the house has been built upon. And that's what Jesus was getting at in the parable when he says, where, where do you build your house? Is your house built on, is it built on sand that shifts, is unpredictable, will fade away? Or do you build your house on the rock that will never be moved, that will never fade away, that will always be there? Jesus challenges us. He, he makes us think about this. Um, I don't know if you've been watching the news much, but this um, next week, January 27th, is the 70th anniversary of the freedom of the prisoners in Auschwitz. And, and, and I've, been, I've been following that. I've been watching that. 
And, and there was a, a gentleman that was sent to Auschwitz. He was uh, really one of the only surviving members of his family. I think his brother uh, made it through. Um, but, his, but his name is Dr. Viktor Frankl. And Dr. Viktor Frankl is, a, is a, a psychologist. He's a doctor. He's a scientist. He's an author. He's all of those kinds of things. And he, and he was there. He was there in Auschwitz. And, and after he got out, he, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And what he was doing is he was looking and thinking and studying the different prisoners that dealt with suffering and how did they deal with suffering and what kind of hope did they have. And he said there was different reactions. Everyone had a kind of a different response, but he broke it down into a few categories. And he said some responded to hopelessness by, by becoming brutal themselves. So when they were in, in situations that were brutal in an environment that was filled with brutality, what they did is they became brutal. They became hard. Uh, they, they became angry. And I don't think that's so far-fetched from what we see today. Uh, what, what people will do when they respond to hopelessness is they get hard-hearted. And it's thin for themselves. And it's not about anyone else. It's about them. And that brutality takes over. And then he went on to say some would do well for a while. They, they, would, they would do well. They would, they would seem like they were making it through. And he said then this would come on them all of the sudden. It was like one day they were well and the next day they would just give up. They would just quit living. They would find them rolled up in a ball where they slept and they wouldn't get up. They wouldn't take food. They wouldn't drink. They wouldn't communicate. They shut down. And that's what hopelessness did to them. Today, we, we, we can see that. We, we may have even experienced that in our own lives, where, where you have this foreboding sense of hopelessness, and what you do is you just shut down. You just give up. You throw in the towel, and you say it's over. He also said that another way that people responded was they would put their hope in what they thought their life would be one day. That, that what they thought would happen is, is when they were in the concentration camp, what they would be focused on is they would be focused on the life they had before in hopes to have the same life afterwards. And what they wanted is they wanted to go back and resume as normal, that whatever they had, whatever properties they had, whatever relationships they had would still be there after they were free from outwits. But they soon found out that life was drastically different. And because they put their hope in what life was in, in the past, many of them committed suicide. Uh, many of them fell to, to devastating depression because they were wanting what they used to have. Frankel went on to say that those truly who overcame the atrocities, the hopelessness there at, at Auschwitz, had a fixed reference point beyond this world. He said what he discovered was there was something that was out of the grasp of death, out of the grasp of destruction, out of the grasp of something that can be stripped away. Those were the people who, who, who went through and made it out on the other side. Present suffering exposes what we put our hope in, and if your hope is in the wrong thing, it's not good. So Paul talks to us about present sufferings, and and then he's going to challenge us to remember that our hope is in heaven. Remember what he said here. I want to read that again to you at verses uh, 18 through 21. And what it says here to us is that 18 through 21 lets us know 
where our hope is. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Because the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So here's what Paul says. Paul is saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to think about. You have your present sufferings identified. So you look at your present sufferings and you identify them. Now compare your present sufferings to the glory that will be revealed. So in essence, you're putting them on kind of a a scale, aren't you? You're saying, here are my present sufferings, and you can label those present sufferings, and here is the glory that will be revealed. And he said, when you compare the two, your present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. So, So compare those. Then Paul says it's not worth comparing. So it's hard for us sometimes to get our head around glory and what's down the road and our present sufferings and how do I think through that. I want to help you do that. I want you to imagine the first day of the year, January 1st, uh, 2015. It's the worst day ever. You have a dentist appointment to get a root canal done. You go into the dentist's office. You sit down. Halfway through the procedure, the anesthesia wears off, and you are in pain for the second half. And you kind of stagger out of the office. You shouldn't be in the car, but you get in the car, and you're in this horrible pain. You're driving home. You're in a car accident. Your car is totaled. You're okay, but your car is totaled. You get out of your car. You look at the other car. You see it's totaled, and you recognize everyone's okay, and the person that gets out of the car, uh, the other car is your spouse. It, It can happen. I think it could happen, and so you both get home, and you notice that when you walk up to the front door, there's something pinned on the front door. It's a foreclosure notice. And you look at the foreclosure notice, you think, oh, no, they're foreclosing on my house. And while you're reading the foreclosure notice, your, your phone goes off and you pull out a text and it's your boss and he's telling you you no longer have a job, that, that your department's been phased out, that don't mind coming in tomorrow. It's the worst day ever, ever. But let's just imagine that January 2nd, things start to look up. They start to really look up. Because what happens is you go and open your email and you're feeling pretty discouraged, pretty down, pretty hopeless. And what you find out is that one of your rich uncles gave you $42 million. In his will, he passed away and he said, here are $42 million. And you jump for joy and you go out and you do what you've always wanted to do. You buy your favorite car, the car of your dreams. You've wanted it for 10 years and you buy that. And you think, wow, we still have enough money. We're going to build our dream home so we build our dream home we put this dream home in and no one told us that Michael Jordan was our neighbor and he likes to come over and shoot hoops with us and so we play basketball with Michael Jordan in our dream house 
And someone says, hey, here's a startup company with medicine and all that kind of stuff. Why don't you put a little money into that? And so you do. Uh, what, you know, what the heck? You know, you got $42 million? Just invest a little bit. And the company you invest in is the company that discovers the cure for cancer. And your net worth goes skyrocket. And all of a sudden, you're not a millionaire. You're a billionaire. And you notice, wow, you're looking around. Hey, there is an island in Tahiti. And I think I would like that because you can afford it now. It's something you always wanted. And so you buy this island in Tahiti and Michael comes. He shoots hoops with you there. And all this is happening. And you're looking at this going, wow, this is great. This is wonderful. And you have this incredible year. And at the end of the year, one of your friends comes up to you and says, hey, he says, well, how did your year go? And you just said, well, I don't know, man. You know, playing hoops with Michael. Well, you want to talk about that? The house I bought in Tahiti, the new house that I had. What, what do you want to talk about? Because it was fabulous. It was an incredible year. And your friend says, wow, I, I, I haven't seen you. And, and on Facebook, I, I noticed that, man, you, you, you got fired from a job. Uh, you, you wrecked your cars. Your house was foreclosed. Uh, I, I, that's, what I, that's what I thought I heard. And, and you respond and you go, oh yeah, I, I forgot about that. I, I've had such an incredible year. I forgot that I started off January 1st with the worst day ever. I, I forgot. Man, compared to what I experienced after that that day, I forgot. You can't even compare it to the first day. It's it's not even worth comparing. And then you you, you get to heaven. You know, you've been there maybe a couple million years, I don't know, and and that same friend comes up and says, so so how how are you doing? And, and, And what you say to them is, it's great. I've been here with God. I've been here with I've been here in person in glory. And I and I can't believe it. And they said, Well, didn't you have a time in your life that you were really struggling with with a severe illness? Didn't you didn't you live like 10, 15, 20 years with a debilitating just disease? And and you respond and you go, Wow, wow, I, I forgot. I, I I mean I I, I don't remember. I forgot. Comparing your present suffering with the glory that you will have for eternity in Christ. It's not comparable. It doesn't compare. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is wanting you to get a picture of comparing your present suffering as you've identified them with the glory that you will have in Jesus Christ in eternity. That our suffering here isn't even compared to the glory of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. <laughs> we don't lose heart because, wow, <laughs> we're going to be in heaven with Jesus and, and there's going to be glory and and, and through, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. There it is again, your present sufferings. Are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all on the balance. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This should be our perspective. <laughs> and that's what Paul's saying. He says, listen, you have to have this perspective. Listen, listen, I, and I believe this. When, and and I'm, a, I, I'm just, just some, I'm, I'm submerged in everything that the Bible says that are our benefits and our blessings and our promises. And one of those promises is that, that when we pray, we want, and we pray for healing in people's lives. I pray for healing. Every time I think of people who are sick, every time they're, they're with me, I want to pray for them. I want people to pray for me when I'm sick. That, that's what we do. And we believe that by his stripes, we are healed. But I'm going to tell you something that can be frustrating is when we act as if the worst thing that could possibly happen is that that person would die and go be with Jesus for eternity. That is when it becomes idolatry. It isn't the worst thing, folks. It isn't the worst thing. And that's why Paul says that. Paul says that in, first, in Philippians. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. But to die is gain, big gain, huge gain, glory gain. That's what he's saying. Our hope isn't in the things of this life. It's in Christ Jesus. It's in our future glory. I've been writing notes back and forth with a good friend that's part of our church that was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And uh, we write pretty often to one another. And, and I'm, just, uh, I, I'm just wanting to learn. <laughs> I, I'm just wanting to see that perspective uh, uh, of someone who's further down the road at understanding what it is uh, to, 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 to know they're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And, and this person wrote, wrote this to me, and it was part of a, a, a letter that, that she sent me. She said, I'm so excited knowing how close I am at looking my Savior in the face. Of course, when that happens, everything else fades to nothing. I envision touching his sweet, shining face as he looks at me from his glowing face. But in reality, I know that when I see him, I'll be falling on my face before him. Wow. She writes, what a moment that will be. Will I be alone before him or will I be with others also seeing him for the first time? I wonder. It brings tears to my eyes just to imagine just to think about the future glory. I want you to look at what Paul says here. He goes a little further, and I'm going to take you a little further in, in Romans 22 through 27. Let me read that to you, and I want you to catch something here. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through the wordless groans. And we who, he, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with his will. 
Did you see that? What is he comparing that to? He's using something here again. He's using childbirth here. Now, I'm going to compare something here, and, and I want to put a disclaimer on this. I know nothing about either one of these. And, and uh, you know, I, I remember my wife, when I uh, thought I could describe childbirth, she, she would look at me, and she goes, you don't know what you're talking about. You know? and, and I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm using this because Paul uses it. And what he's saying here is your light and momentary affliction, your present suffering are to be compared with childbirth. Now, they say there's two most painful things that anyone can go through. It's childbirth and it's passing kidney stones. That's what I understand. From what I know, I would think that's pretty accurate. But Paul uses childbirth and he says, what happens when you experience the pains of childbirth? What happens? There's something that, that, that there's a gift that you receive. And then talking to my wife, once that gift comes and she's holding that gift in her arms and that gift, that child is looking in her eyes, I bet you could ask her and you could ask her, do you remember the pain? What pain? I, yeah, there was pain, but it's not compared to this gift. See, it's not compared to this gift. But if you go through all this and all that comes out at the other end is a stone, you can't hold that in your arms. Oh, man, I'm so, this is such a gift. I, wow, I like this gift. What do you have to show for it? A stone. What do you have to show for childbirth? What do you have to show there? A child, life. Paul says, this present suffering is nothing compared to the life that you will have in Christ. Jesus. C.S. Lewis, one of my most favorite people, wrote this. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Where is your hope? Something that can be taken away or something that is beyond you in this world that can never be taken away. Our hope is in Christ Jesus. Would you just bow your head with me? Would you do that? And I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. and We're just going to close out our time in worship. And let me pray right now. Lord, we just... We just but Lord, Father, just come. And encourage us. Uh, for those that are dealing with hopelessness, just, just encourage us. It is our present suffering. It is real. It is true. It is hard. It is difficult. But Lord, let us choose to put our, our hope and our trust in you. We believe in you. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the freedom that you bring to our lives. Father, set us free. Set us free from the bondage of despair and anxiety. And let our perspective be on you. Let our eyes be lifted up and be put on you. We know that in this life there will be trouble. But in the life that we have in you, beyond this world, will be for eternity. It will be in glory. And it will be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say amen. Amen. 
You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. Thank you.